Katie Herzog, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, I'm okay, but I had a bit of a scare this week. What happened? So you know I have a dog. Wait, no, I had no idea. Yeah, you didn't you've know never, that. You haven't mentioned that before, but okay, I'm with you so far. You have a dog. Okay, yeah, so this is obviously, this is news to you, but I have a dog. His name's Moose. And the other day, he started shitting blood. Jesus. Yeah, so I was obviously super worried about this. And uh, I took him to the emergency vet, you know, so this was, of course, a very expensive trip. I had to drive like 40 minutes to get there. I got there in like 25 minutes, I think. I was really worried that he had like perforated his bowel and that his his gut was filling up with blood and I was going to lose my precious boy. And the vet, they looked at him and they uh, they they seemed to think he was okay. They gave me some antibiotics and I went on my way and then I got home and my wife came home from work and we were talking about it. And she got this like sort of funny look on her face. And I was like, what, what, what's going on? And she confessed to me that the night before she had given Moose her leftover beets. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I thought you were say she had confessed that she had stabbed him in the bowel. <laughs> okay. So it was just, it was just the, the beet color. It was just the beet color, I think. I think it, it could have been blood and the beet color. I didn't inspect it too much, um, but he seems to be okay now. What did it, what did it taste like? <laughs> You're disgusting. Katie, what is the name of this very relieved podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, whereas we're usually a forward-looking podcast, we're going to take a look back. Yes, we are reactionaries today. Is that what a reactionary is? I think so. Yeah, we have a f- we have a bunch of updates today on some of our uh, favorite or least favorite, perhaps stories from the air. Yes, we each uh, have some some updates to provide for stories we've covered in the past. Uh, do you mind if I start with our most recent episode? Actually, yeah, go for it. So last week's episode was partly about this uh, controversy at Perspectives on Psychological Science. An editor was fired uh, in part as a result of uh, fevered online accusations he was racist. You're going to have to just go back and listen to it because uh, it was a little bit complicated. I got a few critical emails that I thought made some points that were fair, some that were less fair. I just wanted to quickly go through and address them because like, this was like a pretty big deal in the world of psychology where you know I've done a fair amount of reporting. Here's one email I got from an academic. I really enjoyed the Brinton Roberts episode. I was taken aback by the mirth over the horse mule controversy, which you guys treated as a ridiculous metaphor, which I guess it is. And I myself wouldn't call Fiddler on the Roof for homey images for my psychology papers, but little thought might have led you to the word mulatto and to the obsessive word and to the obsessive racial taxonomies of American history. It may not resonate automatically with white people who aren't terribly familiar with it, but if you delve into the history of the Deep South, as I have recently in novel reading, you can get a sense of how infuriating the mention of mules might be to a black person who is well-versed in the debasing vocabulary of race disparagement. So, yeah, I'm I'm not as sympathetic to this one because I feel like if it's true that Lee Jussum has to like anticipate Stephen Roberts reading a mention of a mule a certain way, you could say the same thing about Stephen... Roberts, like like the mule, there is this line about mules in Fiddler on the Roof, which is takes place in a different time and place, and mules mean different things in different settings. What, do you think I'm being fair here? I'm just confused about what this has to do with the word mulatto. Is it just that the first three letters are the same? What is the connection here? I'm just totally confused. Okay, we're going to edit this so it doesn't include me looking this up, but as we all know, mulatto, the etymology borrowed from Portuguese or Spanish mulatto of mixed breed young mule. Okay. So it's, it's derived directly from Okay, mule. gotcha. I didn't know that. Well, you learn something new every day when you're a podcaster. You do. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I get the argument, but I just like, he, he 
maybe he took this reference too far, this analogy too far, but it was pretty clear what he was saying in context. He's saying horses are more prized than mules. And mules are black. As he said. Right. Exactly. Uh, uh, you're a terrible influence. <laughs> okay. Another, another listener wrote in to say, Couple minor points of criticism on the psych story. First, I think you're reading Jossum a bit uncritically compared to how you read Roberts. Jossum stretched his mule metaphor in a pretty trollish way. That's the argument I was just referencing. Dot, dot, dot. Second, I think you went a little too easy on Fiedler. When scientists are debating a controversial topic, it's doubly important to follow the standard review process. The debate was also important enough that Fiedler should have solicited at least one commentary that was more sympathetic to Roberts. Because remember, all these commentaries Fiedler solicited were critical of Roberts. Uh, fine. And so keep that in mind as I read this last email that I got from a psychologist I trust a lot, who I think has a, a good head about this stuff. Hey, Jesse, listen to your most recent episode about mules, Justin, etc. I love that. Mules, Justin, etc. Agreed with almost all of it, except for one big piece. The editor's behavior was really awful, for reasons that have nothing to do with race. I'm an editor myself and lean toward giving editors a lot of discretion, but his behavior was bizarre and I think they were right to fire him. Just as one example, when you send a review, a paper out for review, you're supposed to actually send out to critical reviewers. The fact that all the reviewers of the Hommel paper were so pro-Hommel pro that he could publish the reviews along with Hommel as a group attack on Roberts means that it wasn't a review process at all. So... Like I said, not that sympathetic to the mule thing, but I think that's a good point. And I might have been too soft on that question of like the editorial process, um, in part because I've just seen so many examples of bad and corrupt peer review. Maybe I didn't notice how corrupt this was, but I think either way, they shouldn't have forced him out right away. They just should have done an investigation. And if, if the investigation had found the process was this bad, you, you can fire him then. So that was all I wanted to say about that. All right. So today is an update show, and we're going to revisit some stories. And we're going to start with Carrie Jade Williams. This was one of my favorites from the year. Jesse, do you remember this one? I already know the answer. It's going to be no. No, but I have the notes in front of me. <laughs> so yes, Carrie Jade Williams accused guests who stayed at her Airbnb be in Ireland of complaining about her disabilities. Oh, yeah, they were going to sue. It was like she said they threatened to sue her for being disabled. Yeah, yeah. That, so the story starts there. She got on TikTok and she said that the guests at her Airbnb asked her to remove, quote, all disability aids from my own home. And if not, that I leave one star. So she also claimed that the guests, uh, that they were worried that they would catch her disability and that they were suing her for emotional distress and that among the demands were that she pay for six-weighted blankets, adult coloring books, essential oils, yoga classes, aromatherapy, emotional support animals, that's plural, and a housekeeper to clean their home three days a week. Blocked and Reported has a lot of instances of, yeah, that happened. I'm not sure we've ever yeah. had an episode with more, yeah, that happens, than this particular episode. It's also very funny to me that that entire list of demands is exactly what you put on your writer when we did the live tour. Every <laughs> venue had to give you six-weighted six weighted blankets. blankets. Yeah. Yes. And a housekeeper. Six-weighted six weighted nachos, more like. Yeah. So Carrie Jade Williams, uh, it turned out uh, she was suffering from Huntington's disease, which is a particularly cruel illness. It, it's a, like a terrible combo of MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. It's fatal. It's also very heritable. So if your parent is a carrier, there's, I believe, a 50% chance of their offspring getting it. And so Carrie Jade Williams wrote about this, this horrible diagnosis in an award-winning essay in, in the Financial Times. This was in 2020. She said she was diagnosed at 31 and that her doctor told her to go home and make a bucket list. I, do you think this is something that doctors tell people? Make a bucket You know what? I don't know. That's, that's like the least um, unbelievable part of the story, to be honest. 
Yeah, she also said that people asked her if she was going to go to Sweden for euthanasia. You can just go to Canada. You don't have to go all the way to Sweden. Okay, so this if is you go, all- If you go, my understanding, have, I've only read outraged Twitter headlines. My understanding is if you cross the border to Canada, they go, are you poor? And if you say and yes, they, they just you. euthanize you, yeah. That's what happens with socialized medicine, folks. Okay, so obviously this is all terrible, but despite all of this hardship, there was some light for Carrie Jade Williams. She said that she got a Netflix deal and she sold her novel, and she said that she was going to go to the U.S. for some experimental treatment involving brain stimulation. And Jesse, as you may recall, this was all 100% bullshit. There was no lawsuit or Netflix deal or novel or experimental treatments or Huntington's. She was a grifter. She used her story to gain attention and sympathy and money uh, because she was selling these disability lights and toys online. Although she was so she had a website and people would order these things and then they would never receive them. And as we discussed, there was this other weird twist to the story because it turned out that Carrie Jade Williams was actually Samantha Cooks, who was a British woman who was accused and uh convicted of conning a couple out of 1,200 pounds by posing as a surrogate and then absconding with their money. She made fake documents. She made fake Facebook accounts posing as her own previous clients. She conned these people. And she was eventually convicted and given a nine-month sentence suspended. And this was a light sentence. She was initially going to get seven years, which seems like a lot to me for for fraud for that amount of money. Um, But when the judge found out that she had lost a child, she said that she had all of the psychological trauma from losing a child. She got this lighter sense, nine months suspended. So basically, if she uh, behaved herself for two years, she wouldn't see any prison time. And those two years go, go by. And in 2013, she disappears, flees to Ireland, and then reemerges later as Carrie Jade Williams. You remember all this? I'm going to say yes. There's a lot of other weird details in the story, like the fact that after she was caught, she wrote a letter posted on her website claiming that Samantha Cooks was also, was actually her evil sister. And then I got in touch with her cousin, and it turns out she didn't have a sister. Okay, so we have an update on that story. Our update comes from Vice reporter Catherine Dickinson, who spent, it appears, like at least six months working on this story. She did some really incredible reporting. And it turns out that the Carrie Jade Williams grift is even wilder and wider than we knew. So Dickinson reports that when well, – I'm going to start, start calling her Cooks now, uh, her birth name. When she fled to Ireland, she was pregnant at the time and she used a fake ID to escape social services in the UK. She does give birth. She gives birth in January 2014 in Ireland. And then a neighbor reports her to social services for something – And then the kid is sent to live with its father in the UK. So the kid is taken from her. Um, That father also had sole custody of her other child. So now we've got three kids here, two living and and one dead. And that same year, she started working as an au pair for an Irish couple. And at that time, she was going by the name Lucy Hart. Her employer's name was Bonnie. I'm going to read you a bit from the Vice piece here. Over time, Bonnie found Cook's claims increasingly ridiculous, such as saying she had worked as an au pair in Dubai with a, quote, severely autistic boy who used to sit with her in a big tray of baked beans for sensory play. (laughs) I thought that – I thought just you did that. I didn't know other people did this. Isn't that a kink? I think it is a kink. What are you looking for? I'd like to find a woman to sit with me in a big tray of baked (laughs) beans for sensory play. Okay. Continue. I feel like Nico Cotto Avocado probably made that video. Is that his name? Nico Cotto. Oh, God. There's another. We should revisit him at some point. 
Unable to stomach yet another tall tale, Bonnie challenged Cooks, who complained that Bonnie was attacking her and shortly after left her home to go attend a writer's retreat. Now that is fishy. (laughs) Bonnie later made a discovery while cleaning out Cooks' room. It made my blood run cold, she said. So what Bonnie found was a bunch of notes handwritten by Cooks. And uh, or Lucy, as she thought her name was at the time. And here was this was part of a note that made her blood run cold. Quote, I stand shoulder to shoulder with the coroner and I did not murder my daughter. I pray she is at peace. What? So it turns out that this was a reference to her first child, Martha, who died at four four months old. Uh, There was an investigation into her death and the coroner ruled that the cause of death was SIDS. So that's what that was referring to. Now, Cooks did not tell Bonnie any of this. She didn't tell her that she was a parent. She didn't tell her that her own children had been taken away. She didn't tell her that she had a child that died. This was all like total news to this woman. Okay, so that was Lucy Hart, the alias Lucy Hart. Fast forward a couple of years, and now it's 2016, and Cooks is now calling herself Lucy Fitzwilliam. At that point, she moves to Dublin and starts telling people that she's an occupational therapist and the owner of a woman's refuge. She pulls some more scams on more families. At one point, she claims that she's going to take some local kids to Lapland and that her church will pay for it if the families will just pony up 500 bucks each. I just love the name it's Lapland. Like, is that Finland? It sounds like a club in the Bronx that it's- would shut down. <laughs> Of course, there is no trip to Lapland, and the families report her to the Irish police, and the Irish police don't charge her. The next year, she has a different alias. This one is Rebecca Fitzgerald. And at that point, she was posing as a therapist for autistic children. Again, she was reported- This is like baked bean based therapy, I hope. Yeah, she puts the kids in vats of baked beans and sends them to Lapland. Uh, She was again reported to the police, this time for lying about her identity and her qualifications as a therapist, and she again disappears, and a friend of hers makes a missing uh, missing persons page for her on Facebook. Eighteen months later, Carrie Jade Williams emerges with her incredible story of resilience in the face of Huntington's disease, and she keeps scamming. In 2021, for instance, she moves to Kenmar, that's a town in Ireland, and made friends in the literary scene there and ran writing competitions, which of course had fees to end her and of course had no actual (laughs) winners or prizes. That's awesome. So Catherine Dinkinson, the reporter, again, really, really thorough work here. She appears to have spoken to dozens of people who knew Cooks, including people from her childhood. And she says that people kept asking. All they wanted to know was, did this start after she lost her baby to SIDS? And the answer appears to be no. She's been a compulsive liar since she was a teenager. And she was, quote, known to invent tragedies and dramatic events for attention. Uh, Dickinson also went to Cook's home in Kenmare, and she writes this. The next day, I visited Cook's home and to find a sign on the door that said, I'm in a meeting and unable to answer the door. If you need me, please text me with her phone number at the bottom. After ringing the doorbell to no avail, Cook sent me a text five minutes later saying, my doorbell has logged a number of attempts this morning, which I presume is you. Cook's doorbell is not the kind that can log when it is rung. <laughs> so that's the like quality of lying that she's doing at this point is lying that her doorbell is a ring doorbell. You can tell when it's got a camera on it. Yeah, that's not a, not a good lie. Yeah. Okay. So Cooks refuses to see the reporter. And then weeks later, a neighbor contacts Dickinson, Dinkinson and says that Cooks told her she was having a medical emergency and left in the middle of the night and hadn't been seen since. But Jesse... I think that I have found Samantha Cooks slash Carrie Jade Williams slash Lucy Hart slash Lucy Fitzwilliam, and she's now known as Dr. Robert Honeyman. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to work in a Dr. Robert Honeyman reference. 
Do you want to explain that? Should I? Dr. Robert Honeyman, I think he came to my attention when you posted uh, a screenshot, which reads as follows. Sad to announce that my husband has entered a coma after being in hospital with COVID. The doctor is unsure if he will come out. This year has been the toughest of my life losing my sister to this virus. This is the first time in my life I don't see light at the end of the tunnel. Then the second tweet, and this might be why you put a bunch of red flags above this. If you could follow me on this platform, I need as much people around me as possible right now. Feeling empty sadness. You know, I think this is the first thing a grief counselor tells you when you've had a tragedy like this. Use it to get followers. Okay, you pronounce that grief clownsler, which is such a good <laughs> idea to cheer people up. That's what I was talking about, a clownsler. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dr. Robert Honeyman also, it turned out, or were you going to get to the thing about his, his image? Uh, yeah, no, no, go for it. Someone else popped up. So the image is just like an attractive, I don't know, a darker skinned doctor uh, looking guy. And then someone else popped up and was like, you stole my photo. I was a stock photo model. Yeah. And so what I also found curious about this was not just Dr. Patrick Honeyman, but he he engaged, like he tagged his husband. So I went through and looked at his his husband's profile. Here's Dr. Honeyman's profile or his um, his bio on his Twitter Twitter account. They, them, trans, doctor of sociology and feminist studies, keen interest in poetry, consultant for LGBTQ plus representation in TV of movies, always learning. And he has a little uh, Ukraine flag and a trans flag in his in his bio. His husband, lecturer, husband, father, hobbies include ballroom dancing and 10-pin bowling, classical music teacher, proud to be part of the LGBTQ community. To me, this was odd because it's like the style of writing is exactly the same. And like the punctuation is the same. Everything is the you same. You mean the same as, as Honeyman, Honeyman and their doctor as, and as their Honeyman. husband. Yeah. yeah. And his husband. And then I started looking at the, the accounts that were retweeting him. And I found this guy, Dr. Steve Ville. Steve Stee, like his nickname is Stee Ville. Wait, my name, wait. So my name is Steve Stee, Stee for short. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Father, son, doctor, University of Antwerp, LGBTQ plus ally, proud mask wearer, he, him. And then there was there was a couple other ones, and they all have that same, like, very similar profile with very similar punctuation. All doctors, all, like, queer or trans or an ally or something like this, and they were all retweeting each other. So I Googled them, and it turns out none of them exist. This thing is total bullshit. Jesse, guess how I how I like saw how this even came across my feed. Um, I think someone like legitimately retweeting it and think it's real. Well, Taylor Lorenz liked it, and that's why it showed up in my feed. A Washington Post reporter liked this tweet, which was so obviously fake from the beginning, and it had thousands of people. Oh my god! Like giving their condolences and shit like this. I haven't read it yet, but the Daily Beast did an expose of that fake account of Honeyman, so we should include a link to that in the uh, show notes. Sure. And it, so, so you're you're saying there's like a whole ring of of fake LGBT doctors on Twitter? How deep does this go, Katie? It's fake doctor on fake doctor on fake doctor all the way down. Now, I do not actually have you have you have you entered the Gatrix? <laughs> it's the nexus. I have not actually. I do not actually think that this is Carrie Jade Williams at all. But my point is that. Nobody on the internet knows if you're a woman with, with Huntington's disease or a gay doctor or a complete fucking fraud. And I really think that this shit happens all the time. Yeah, it's interesting because like back in the day before we had like, I don't know, cameras or films or whatever, like the, the grifter going town to town selling nerve tonics, people would get mad at him and he could just literally flee to another town or like the monorail guy in The yeah. Simpsons. 
now you could just do that online. I mean, in this case, the Carrie J. Williams story is amazing because it involves like physically moving, but like literally you could just nuke your account when you're found out. And as soon as you tell a certain sob story, you'll just be inundated with like approval. Like there's so much more incentive to lie these days. What if all of these people is the same person and it's all sciencing by? <laughs> sciencing by just completely expanded their efforts. Uh, wasn't there also something, we got an email, something about Carrie Jade Williams and Elizabeth Holmes? Yeah. So a couple months ago, we got this email from a, a former public defender. And this was right before another grifter, Elizabeth Holmes, was about to be sentenced. And uh, this our listener had been looking into the documents that were submitted by her attorneys in support of her. And one of them comes from a Miss Williams from Ireland. Let me read you just a bit of this. I'm a 34-year-old woman with a degenerative neurological illness. I am terminally ill, and I am writing to you to please consider not ascending Elizabeth Holmes to jail. I do not personally know Elizabeth. I, of course, have seen the media destroy her reputation. But as someone who has a neurological illness with no hope of a cure, I need people like Elizabeth to continue to dare to innovate. (laughs) She didn't innovate. Dare to innovate by pretending to innovate. That's so crazy. So you think that's the same person? It's like the same story. It, we can't verify that this is the same person, but the writing is very similar. The age is very similar. It might be the same person. Did uh did Doctor Honeyman send any support <laughs> in for as someone whose husband who is real has COVID? We'll have to check the documents for that. Anything else on this? One of the craziest grifters we've come across. She might come back. Who knows? This, that's all for now. Should we do housekeeping? Yeah, let's do it. All right. We're a podcast. We're called Blocked and Reported. You can find us at blockedandreported.org. If you go there, you can get three extra episodes of this podcast a month for just $5 and up a month. Our most recent one was about the Twitter files. <laughs> oh, we couldn't remember the X-Files music. I keep wanting to do it. All I'd have to do is pull it up once and then I would know it, but I've just refused to do that. Anyway... The Twitter files. It was a good episode. Uh, There was a good response to it. And we've also got some interesting stuff coming up on the premium feed. Also, if you want our merchandise, including shirts which read phrases such as pervert for nuance and Park Slope Panthers, you can go to our brand new or newly relaunched merch store, barpodmerch.com. What else, Katie? I'm just curious about what happens when someone wears a pervert for nuance shirt in public. They probably get mobbed by chicks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure. At the uh, gaming convention that they wear, too. Uh, at the internet, at the Tokyo Internet Cafe. Um, oh, yeah. Blo- uh, Reddit, blockchainreported.reddit.com. Rate and review us on uh, Apple, whatever it's called. Apple Podcasts, iTunes. iTunes. Uh, anything else, Katie? I think that's it. Okay. The other story we want to revisit today is uh, about Loudoun County and this horrible pair of sexual assaults that allegedly took place there. Katie, what do you remember about this? Uh, okay. It's your turn to not remember. remember right Loudoun now. County is in Virginia. Ding, ding, ding. The governor is Roy Moore. Uh, <laughs> you're, off, you're off, so here <laughs> is 2004. Damn it. <laughs> okay, you lost me. Uh, this was a case about an alleged or maybe convicted, uh, sexual assault, maybe two, in a school bathroom by a non-binary skirt wearer, maybe? Well, right. Okay. So uh, this was all the way back in 2021, if you can remember that. Over the course of not one but two episodes, yeah, we talked about this situation in Loudoun County where a student allegedly raped a classmate in the girl's bathroom, was transferred to another school, and then committed another 
sexual assault. And because the student was allegedly wearing a skirt during the first assault, rumors spread that the student was non-binary or genderqueer. And that supercharged what had already been an ongoing Loudoun County debate about, about bathroom and locker room policy. So things got really heated because the victim of the first assault's uh, father showed up at a school board meeting. And he got into an altercation with another mom who was apparently talking shit to his wife, saying the assault that his daughter wasn't really assaulted. At that same meeting, the superintendent of Loudoun County School, Scott Ziegler, answered a question by saying he wasn't aware of any bathroom assaults in the district. And it was... It seemed like he was lying at the time. So, yes, this um, didn't directly lead to, but but fit into this campaign that involved Glenn Young- Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe fighting for the governor's race. Uh, Terry McAuliffe lost, but we know from MSNBC that's just because of white supremacy. It doesn't have to do with any culture war things or school closings or anything like that, right? Agreed? Agreed? Yeah, right. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. There's a lot of other details here. If you want to be fully caught up, check out episode 87, which is actually the second episode, but that's got more more meaty stuff. Uh, there's also a subplot involving the Daily Wire not doing very good journalism. We'll set that aside for now. A lot of stuff here. Okay, so what's the update? Okay, so uh, Glenn Youngkin, after he's sworn in via an executive order, he calls for a grand jury investigation into how Loudoun County handled these sexual assaults. Uh, that came out December 2nd. And the Washington Post and other outlets did cover it. And what does it say? It paints a picture of like a profoundly dysfunctional school district. Um, I'm just going to go through some of the lowlights. Folks should really read the full document or at least the Washington Post article about it, uh, which we'll link to. But um, it turned out that even before this kid's alleged sexual assaults, he detracted some attention. On, on May 12th, 2021, less than a month after Loudoun County returned to in-person learning, a teaching assistant at Stonebridge High School Uh, That's where the first assault will later take place. She writes this in an email to a teacher and to her department chair. Good afternoon. Even though he started the year pretty well, and though he gets along with his peers, student seems to have a problem with listening and keeping his hands to himself. He has come into class more than once with his arm around a girl's neck. I have caught him sitting on other girls' laps several times. Uh, There doesn't need to be a global pandemic to say that this is unacceptable. His refusal and disregard to me and my assistant has, has us at our wits end. Uh, dot, dot, dot. I wouldn't want to be held accountable if someone should get hurt. Ooh. So of the two recipients, one of them says they don't know who the student is and why they're on the email. This is from the grand jury report. Quote, the other recipient, a department chair, viewed the email blithely. She testified she was confused because she wasn't sure if the author meant, like, get sick, like with COVID, get hurt, or if it was something else, and questioned the true motivation of the author. She did, however, follow up with the student's case manager who called the student's mother. None of this is documented in the student's file, and neither the department chair nor the case manager spoke with the author of the email about her concerns or what prompted her to write the email. So that's just like a pattern throughout this is adults just not doing anything to look into this kid as he exhibits more and more troubling behavior. Okay, so what's another example of that? Well, so a little more than two weeks later, uh, the male student arranges to meet up with his victim in the bathroom. It was intended to be a consensual meeting. Um, this is particularly infuriating because it just shows how easily this could have been prevented. Um, I'll just read directly from the grand jury report. This is a little bit intense, so I don't know. Trigger warning. Yeah, basically. At 12 p.m., the two students met in the handicapped stall of a female bathroom in SBHS, the high school. The male student became handsy and then more aggressive, which caused bruising on her chest. 
The female laid down on her stomach on the floor, and the male held her arms down as he penetrated her. Oh my God. While this was occurring, a special education teaching assistant walked into the restroom. This caused the male student to jump up. The female student was in a lot of pain and got up slowly, and when she was in a seated position, the male student pushed her shoulders down and grabbed her face. The special education teaching assistant later said she saw two pairs of feet under the stall, but she did nothing about it. She testified this was not an uncommon occurrence because, quote, somebody could have their period. They might need a tampon or somebody had a boyfriend they had a fight with, end quote. The assailant later acknowledged that, quote, they usually don't do anything, end quote, regarding two pairs of feet in a stall. After the teaching assistant left, the assailant again forced penetration against the Jesus female student, Christ. this time orally. What the fuck? So the student, this is again, the assailant himself is like, yeah, they don't do anything when they see two of us in the stall together. Okay, so a big part of this story, and just interrupt me if you were going to talk about this later, a big part of this story is because the kid was supposedly non-binary. This is like, and and I was going to get this at the end, it's basically the kid was wearing a skirt or a kilt during this first assault, depending on who you ask. I don't think any evidence has come out that they had a consistent trans identity this of course has become a political football um but my sense is they are male everyone's referring to them as he who sometimes would wear a skirt or girl's clothing okay so i mean that is the thing that detail the fact that the kid was supposedly non-binary is part of the reason that this became a national story because trans kids in bathrooms is a culture war issue did the school talk did the report talk about that at all or yeah, we're going to get into the one it, it yeah, we're going to get there. Um so okay. basically the the girl reports what happened to her. Her dad shows up at the school thinking it was a physical assault and he initially they won't let him in the building cuz he doesn't have ID, which is really weird cuz you would imagine he could just say I was told my daughter was assaulted, go get her. She'll say like isn't that weird that he was literally held up outside the building not allowed to enter? I mean, if he didn't have an ID, I'm sure that that's probably a normal precaution. That's surprising. Um, you know, among schools at this point you're you're more forgiving than i am which is yeah. not usually the case um okay what wasn't reported like in the daily wires reporting was his wife was actually already there with the daughter dad does get in the wife tells him it was actually a sexual assault he gets enraged makes something of a scene he's escorted out of the building here's more from the report quote emails indicate that at this time the sbhs principal was concerned about obtaining a no trespass letter for the father mm. The assailant, the, the accused rapist, was not found until nearly an hour after that email was sent while leaving the school at dismissal. So they just let the kid go like, go back to class? No, I have no... It's bizarre. Given the nature of the allegations, we are dismayed at the lack of concern regarding the assailant being at large in the school for over three hours and believe the school should have been locked down to find the individual. Is this what people mean when they talk about rape culture? <laughs> I mean, you. Uh, so the kid who allegedly raped someone is just sort of nowhere to be found for more than three hours. And during that time, at least some of the school principal's attention is instead being spent on making sure they can keep the father away. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it is crazy. We maybe the father was threatening people. Uh, do we know anything about that? We know. I can. I can just like I can imagine an irate, a totally irate father that would. Uh, exacerbate the situation in some ways i'm not trying to be sympathetic towards the school clearly they fucked up here over and over and over yeah but you could see how they might i I just i imagine that schools have very well (laughs) maybe not when it comes to student behavior but are very cautious when it comes to things like and stuff 
Threats. Yeah. They should be more cautious about rapists. But. Right, yeah. So around the same time, the this is the one part where like trans policy sort of officially comes in. The school district's chief operating officer emails some other higher-ups, including the superintendent, to inform them what's going on. Here, here's what this person says. Quote, the incident at SBHS is related to policy 8040. Uh, then they say, I'll, we'll set up a meeting to talk about this later. Uh, this is from the grand jury report. The superintendent, now deputy superintendent, director of comms, and chief operating officer immediately joined the meeting. The director of student services and SBHS principal soon joined, and the meeting lasted for 30 minutes. We don't know what happened during that meeting, but we do know the incident at SBHS is related to policy 8040. That uh, sentence was how this meeting with the higher ups happened. So they thought it was going to have something to do with trans policy. Okay, gotcha. So that's because that happened because it was reported the alleged assailant was wearing girls' clothes. So the superintendent knew this was a potential case of a trans identifying student committing an assault in a bathroom, which directly contradicts what he later said during the school board meeting. That quote, to my knowledge, we don't have any records of assaults occurring in our restrooms. Mm. So the grand jurors basically call him a liar pretty explicitly, and that seems justified. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so a little bit later at 4.10 p.m., the superintendent emails the school board stating an alleged rape took place and that the dad of the alleged victim was disruptive. A little after that, uh, the principal of the school sends an email to everyone explaining there was an incident, but he only talks about the disruptive dad. None of the parents are informed there was an alleged rape. And when we were talking about this, I expressed some sympathy for the school because I'd heard that privacy issues can make it hard to reveal certain things at certain times about a sexual assault. For what it's worth, here's what the grand jury said. Loudoun County Public School officials repeatedly cited privacy concerns or jeopardizing the sheriff's office investigation as the reason why the sexual assault was not mentioned in the email. However, for a school system that repeatedly trumpets the importance of student safety, LCPS dropped the ball in this instance in alerting the community about this incident. There was certainly a way to inform the community about the allegations of sexual assault without sharing information about any of the students or jeopardizing an ongoing investigation. So, um... They just don't tell anybody that there was an assault. They apparently could have. This next part is like remarkable. Quote, the sexual assault occurred on the Friday before Memorial Day. When school resumed the next Tuesday, LCPS had no formal policy for how to handle this situation. So SBHS came up with a temporary solution, allowing the assailant to remain in school, but keeping him separated from the victim. The following day, June 2nd, 2021, the assailant was back in school on his computer deleting conversations and potentially evidence from Discord. Okay, that's really bad. I do wonder, though, right at this point, it's an alleged assault, right? So do school districts have some obligation to go through some sort of investigation or due process before they penalize somebody? Yeah, we talked about that in – in it was forever ago now. Yeah, students um, – schools cannot easily – Expel kids, like kids have a right to education, but that's different from the question of should the cool kid just be back after the weekend in school, just right, like stay right. stay away from the kid you allegedly raped. Um, it, it just – and be allowed to go on – they have these school um, distributed Chromebooks and he's allowed to just go on there and apparently delete Discord chats. Yeah. Skipping over some other fairly crazy but like complicated dysfunction, um, the – Grand jury also includes some quotes about the kid. His own grandmother called him a sociopath and said wow. he, quote, does not care about consequences. Uh, his mom, meanwhile, 
quote, pleaded with the, after he was eventually arrested, pleaded with the probation officer that she had been begging for help from the school for years only to have them, quote, this is her direct quote, enable his manipulative capabilities by siding with him and trying to be the fair and neutral party, often discounting my approach and recommendations with respect to his reasoning and actions. Only after his actions escalated to concerning levels did they choose to listen and incorporate my input. So she's just saying, like, my kid is really troubled and the school won't do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, what should schools do about troubled kids before they act? Do we have an answer to that? Send them to the counselor? The counselor? I mean, it's a case-by-case thing, but this seems like a pattern, a repeated pattern that's about to get worse of just, like, no one doing anything. So, um... Over the summer, the principal of Stonebridge High School calls the principal of Broad Run High School, also in Loudoun County, to say there's going to be what's known as an involuntary student transfer. The Stonebridge principal mentions the student is facing a sexual assault charge and has a court order to stay away from Stonebridge, but, quote, the BRHS principal did not ask further questions about the nature of the charge or the incident that led to it. So you're a school principal. Someone's like, we're sending you a kid. He's an alleged rapist. And you're like, okay, cool. See you later. Right, right. As soon as this kid gets to the new school, he starts causing problems. Two female students asked to be moved away from him in class because, quote, he had discovered where their friend group was hanging out and was following them places, appearing everywhere they were, end quote. Uh, So this is a kid who's been charged with anal rape. He's wearing an ankle bracelet at this point, and he's following around female students. Future podcaster right here. (laughs) Uh, so, quote, the art teacher, that's the one in the class where he's following the kids around, subsequently told the BRHS principal about this entire situation, quote, in case anything else had kind of occurred in other classes or anything that I wasn't aware of, end quote, the BRHS principal simply approved of her plan to, to like, uh, separate the kids and said he was going to, quote, check in with the transfer student. So... The principal is just sitting on his ass, not doing anything as a rapist is trans alleged rapist is transferred into a school and starts harassing girls. Good work. Good work. A month before the second assault, he makes inappropriate comments to a female student, grabs her shoulder really hard, attempts to steal her computer, keeps tapping her head with a pencil. He's reported to the Title IX apparatus, but it's determined he didn't do enough to meet the threshold this for Title IX violation, <laughs> perhaps marking the first time in human history that has ever uh, happened. Yeah, we've heard of so many stories and reported some stories about Title IX cases that are so Kafka-esque when the complaints against people are vague or or sometimes the complainer isn't actually a victim of the person, of the alleged perpetrator. I mean, maybe it's different in high schools, but it's, just, it's funny to, to compare. Uh, so administrators take no further action, though the principal does talk to the kid's probation officer. The, pr- the principal decided, quote, a verbal reprimand and a phone conference with the student's mother was sufficient, end quote. The student also had to write on a piece of paper that he wouldn't do it anymore. <laughs> How many times? That's a good question. Was it like a Bart Simpson situation? or So, yeah. so more broadly, yeah. despite the fact that many adults in Loudoun County knew what this kid had allegedly done, quote, not a single person with knowledge of the student's history or of this current action stepped in to do anything. Instead, discipline was left to the BRHS principal who did nothing more than issue him a verbal reprimand, end quote. So then on October 5th, he starts chasing this one girl and her friend. They hide in the bathroom. The next day, as is captured on video, he, quote, put his arm around the female student's neck, abducted her into the classroom, and closed the door. Once inside the classroom, the assailant put a chokehold on the female student to the point where she could not breathe and then sexually assaulted her. Oh, my God. It's just an incredibly crazy, disgusting story of institutional incompetence. Yeah, one thing that's interesting about this to me is that 
a lot of the response when it, this became a national news story was partisan, right? And it was conservatives who were outraged about this story, in part because the Daily Wire reported that the attacker was a trans kid. And so there were these implications that this was or would be enabled by policies that would have allowed trans kids to use the bathroom that they want to. But if framed differently, it's a story about rape culture. And so you would expect liberals to be the ones, you know, storming the school board meetings. I, yeah, I it gets a little complicated because on the one hand, none of the factual details really hang on his gender. Um, when the bathroom at the time of the first assault, uh, the policy, the trans inclusive policy wasn't officially enacted. After it was enacted, this is policy 8040, it, it read, quote, students shall be allowed to use the facility that corresponds to their consistently asserted gender identity. So even if it had applied, been enforced, it might not have applied to him if he's just putting a skirt on once in a while anyway. So the from the perspective of if this policy could have prevented this from happening, uh, it just doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. There was a there was a a teaching assistant or teacher in the bathroom seeing two pairs of feet who didn't do anything about it. I mean, she probably just thought they were doing cocaine. <laughs> yeah. So there's all this other apparently corrupt shit going on because remember it was flagged in that email from the school system's chief operating officer as being about policy eighty forty. Uh, the grand jury writes that they basically think the uh, the school board members were coached into answering certain questions in certain ways including by saying the kid was wearing a kilt, not a skirt. <laughs> Other people have reported a skirt. So so the grand jury actually goes so far as to say they think the, this lawyer for the Loudoun County Public Schools engaged in witness tampering during this investigation, but they can't indict them because, quote, no Virginia statute explicitly addresses witnessing tampering and the Virginia obstruction of justice statute does not cover this fact pattern. So they're basically saying they think this lawyer crept right to the line breaking the law and that has something to do with these school board members all saying the same thing about – it's just incredibly corrupt. And, the, and there was other legal fallout. The Washington Post explains the grand jury actually ended up indicting the superintendent, Jeff Ziegler, on misdemeanor counts of false publication uh, and some other stuff, not all of which is about this particular incident. It just sort of fell out of the investigation. School district spokesman Wade Byard faces one felony count of perjury. You can read about that in the Washington Post. Jeff Ziegler was fired. So I guess the closest thing we'll get to a happy ending here is like a couple of adults were indicted. But this is just an incredibly fucked up story and like you were saying like you whatever you think of the concept of rape culture that seems to be at play here it seems to be more about just like an inability to discipline a really dangerous kid than about this particular policy person. yeah for sure and this story it's obviously a terrible story but i think if you broaden it out a little bit there are i think some tensions about due process because we've also done stories where somebody has been falsely accused of something, gets wrapped up in the Title IX yeah. system, and gets punished without due process. And I think the school is in a difficult position here in some ways because unless the kid was convicted, then you're punishing for something that they've allegedly done. That said, yeah. like you have to protect kids from rapists in the fucking school. That seems pretty basic. And I – and I think it's different if there's like a pattern of complaints and a from witness. different girls and he's chasing girls down the hall. There's a witness. He's uh, – some of it's on video. And his mom is like saying my kid's out of control and the school is siding with the kid. Um, uh, yeah. And then, of course, the superintendent getting up at the school board meeting and saying I'm not aware of any assaults in bathrooms. Lying. Like it's a grotesque, despicable lie. So um, it's just – it's such an ugly story and – I don't know. I, I don't. No one. There shouldn't be any dispute over the fact that the, like you're saying, there are some trade-offs here. But 
a, a kid raped a girl and then was transferred to another school where the principal didn't seem to care that there was a rapist prowling around and then just assaulted another kid. It's such a failing on so many levels. Uh, have there been any updates from the Daily Wire? No, I, I got to say like, people can go back and listen to that episode I mentioned. I was not happy with the reporting. They they got something I thought pretty wrong early. This also suggested their reporting was not that tight or well-sourced because their reporting, I, I think, left out key details, including that the kid's mom was already there. So I, I don't know who they were basing it on. I think... I just don't think they did a good job. But I, I re-listened that episode the other day, and as we were saying, we criticize lefty outlets a lot. It should not surprise us that on such a politically charged issue, a conservative outlet would maybe cut some corners. All right, Jesse, well, thank you for the update. Are you ready for one more? Yeah, let's do one more. All right, do you remember Basecamp? Basecamp is a company. So Basecamp is a tech company, but good guess. And we talked about them because in 2021, they implemented a new office policy The office policy was no more politics, no more societal politics talk. The rule was that you could still talk about politics privately or individually, but it was now banned from open channels on the the company messaging platform. And this, of course, came amid the racial reckoning. And so when they were saying no social politics, societal politics, they weren't talking about like discussions of primaries or policies. Mostly what they were talking about was the cultural stuff that was happening, I think specifically around race at that moment. You remember 2021? It was weird. Yeah, a little bit weird. It was good for, I mean, it launched our podcast. It did, yes. Well, actually, that was 2020, but pretty close. Okay, so like every other corporation, there have been increasing demands from employees within Basecamp to address things like diversity. The founders, uh, Jason Fried and DHH, his name is actually David Heinemeyer Hansen, but he goes by DH, were receptive in, in some ways. They'd spoken publicly about the need to diversify, and they, like at one point, DHH recommended that employees read Ta-Nehisi Coates. Their personas on Twitter at the time were very, like, progressive tech guy, pretty basic. Within the company, there was a DEI council made up of almost a third of the staff. Uh, they looked at company practices like hiring and vendors and speakers and stuff like that. And in particular, some people on the council took issue with a, a list of funny customer names called Best Names Ever that employees had started compiling in, in 2009. I don't have any actual examples of the names that were on this list, but I read a, detect- a Norwegian detective series where the lead character is named Harry Hole. So I imagine a name like that would make the list. Or David Heinemeyer. Yes, also that. So a number of the names on the list were Asian and African. The list wasn't primarily or even mostly made out of African or Asian names, but you can imagine why this would make employees uncomfortable in 2021, right? Definitely. I still don't get the sense that it was like a very active list by 2021, but two of the employees who were still there who had contributed apologized for contributing to it in the past. Okay, so employees were complaining about this and talking about how the company needed to hold itself accountable. And on their internal messaging platform, their like version of Slack, one of the employees who apologized posted a graphic from the ADL called the Pyramid of Hate. Uh, do you want to describe this, Jesse? Yeah, I've seen it before, but the Pyramid of Hate is is like this weird pyramid where the top is genocide and bright red. It's like that's where the grains would go on the food pyramid. No, I thought the food pyramid was out of date because they want us to eat a lot of grains. Yeah, that's the top. The top is like okay, fat. Okay, fine, whatever. No, I don't know how a pyramid part. works. What so am I, Egyptian? The 
the bo- the bottom is biased attitudes, like stereotyping, insensitive remarks, fear of differences, microaggressions. So I think people don't like. I don't know. My response is like it's his explaining a bit too uh, straightforward a connection between microaggressions and genocide. Even if you do have to go all the way up the pyramid, right? So you start out with a list of funny names, and then the next day you're murdering people in Myanmar. Genocide, yeah, right? Okay, so or maybe you're maybe you're only murdering people with normal names. Ooh, we don't know how it would maybe. Go. Okay, so this becomes this discussion on this internal internal messaging platform DAH DHH the founder he doesn't like this he says that this is catastrophizing and that it escalated emotions which was probably true and he wanted to move on from this discussion but then another employee said the way that we treat names is connected to power and oppression and racial hierarchies at which point DHH go through goes through old chat logs and he gets a screenshot of that same employee making fun of somebody's name. Not good. So he posts it for the entire company to see. And then he gets reported to HR by two of his own employees. And uh, presumably this was because they saw this as bullying. And I can totally see how the boss posting this is feels very aggressive. But it's a really good dunk. Very good dunk. Is the boss allowed to dunk? I guess that's the question. Yeah. It's controversial. Okay, so two weeks after this, Jason Fried, the other co-founder, announces no more politics talk at work. And DHH, he explained himself at the time, explained this decision at the time, and he was basically like, look, these debates over social issues, they just get too heated and no one's mind ever changes. And especially when it's happening happening on messaging platforms and it's not healthy and it's not productive and it distracts employees from doing their actual work. And he also said that Basecamp would no longer be weighing in publicly on social issues. So no more black Instagram squares for Basecamp. Uh, and the company said that anyone who didn't want to continue to work there over this policy, they could leave. They would be given severance. And then according to reporting from Casey Newton, immediately over 20 people were like, fuck you, I'm out. And that was about a third of the company's staff. And so this immediately became a massive story. Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah, it was a really big deal. And the founder, as this became a bigger and bigger story, the founders were painted by tech reporters kind of as the villains here, especially DHH. Here's a quote from Casey Newding's reporting. Collectively, they, that's the employees he spoke to, describe a company whose attempt to tamp down on difficult conversations blew up in its face as employees rejected the notion that discussions of power and justice should remain off limits in the workplace. And they suggest that efforts to eliminate disruptions in the workplace by regulating internal speech may cause even more turmoil for a company in the long run. Well, Jesse, the long run has arrived. And in December, DHH posted a blog called Meta Goes No Politics at Work and Nobody Cares. And the title refers to a recent decision at Meta, nay Facebook, that would also, that will also limit what people can talk about at work. Uh, this is a memo. This was first reported by Fortune. The issues that can no longer be discussed include health matters such as vaccine efficacy and abortion, legal matters such as pending legislation, political matters such as elections or political movements, and weapon ownership and rights. So a lot of stuff uh, that uh, people love to debate. Yeah, on Facebook. And 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 and, and why? Like it's just. I mean, I know we're getting there, but it's like, why does anyone think this would be a good idea? Who's the? Pr- I don't know anyone who's like, yes, we should definitely be fighting about politics with our colleagues at work. That's what we want. Yeah, and they also say that they're no longer going to be weighing in on social issues either. And as DHH points out, 
This is not a massive media story at all. It's a nothing media story. When Basecamp and before that Coinbase, when they nixed politics at work, they were trending on Twitter. This was a giant, it's hard to overstate how big this story was for something that's pretty minor, like a company changes its policy on, on, on what you can say on the Slack channel and it becomes this fucking thing. But in this case, nobody cares, including tech reporters as far as I can tell. So why do you think that is, Jesse? I don't know. It, what it reminded me of like, was all those New York Times reporters saying that Tom Cotton calling to send in the National Guard to quell rioting would put black staffers in jeopardy. And then the National Guard was sent into Kenosha. <laughs> like literally the thing they talked about, you can't even say it. You can't even say it should happen. The thing happened. And you're just like, it's just very weird. People just like jump from outrage to outrage. I mean, I don't, I don't have a better theory than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess there's really no telling why something makes, makes it part of the media cycle and, and something else doesn't. Um, but this definitely didn't. Did DHH say thing, how things are going at base camp now that they've made this change? Yeah, he says that it's better. He, he writes this in his blog post. The long-term benefits of the new etiquette are clear now that we've had to live with the results for a while. It's been a night and day improvement inside the company compared to the few years that preceded it. Now, I don't know if employees would agree with that. I tried to connect with a few, no success there. I'm inclined to believe him, though, because there used to be, I don't know if you can remember this far back, but there used to be this whole thing about how you shouldn't talk about politics or religion in polite society, like in mixed company. Like a dinner party or whatever. Right, right. Much less at war. Like that's presumably among your friends and family. Like we're talking about work. People have very different opinions about how the world should look. And so it is not at all hard for me to believe that eliminating those subjects is going to eliminate strife. But he also says something else I want to get your take on. And this is why he thinks that uh, that the, the meta story, nixing politics at work, didn't make a big stir. He says we're, quote, in the waning days of DEI's dominance, most people are simply ready to move on from this nonsense. They don't want to discuss abortion, gun rights, vaccine efficacy, or elections with their coworkers during work hours and work forums, and they shouldn't have to. So, Jesse, what do you think? Is DEI dying? I don't think people ever wanted to do this. I think I think for a span, the sorts of people who want to turn their shitty for-profit corporation into a revolutionary battleground were licensed to do so because their managers were like too scared. You know, you'd be called whatever. I don't think I don't think it was ever the case that there were like a lot of people who wanted to fight about politics at work. I just think people are getting better at saying no to it now that they've seen the damage it can cause to a company or an institution. But I still think there's there's a huge amount of craziness in a lot of institutions. Yeah. It's been a while since I've worked in an institution. It's been even longer for you. When you were at – so New York Magazine was your last real job? I, I was there so long before shit got crazy. Um, okay. And I did not okay. think there was craziness there at the time. Well, you were there during the Trump the Trump election, weren't you? Yeah. We were all really upset about Trump. But I – no, I – I guess with something like that, like everybody was probably on the same page. They're probably Probably weren't too many outliers at New York Mag who were like, no, elect. If if they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if there were people who like weren't upset about Trump, they were probably not speaking up about. Yeah, it. you think Jonathan Chait? You think he was? Uh, he loves yeah. Trump. He's been really clear about that. Yeah. Okay, uh, so DHH, he actually wrote a separate blog post about this question: Is DEI dying? Or his? He doesn't think it's a question. He thinks it is. This is his argument. Uh, affirmative action is probably dead, and DEI values are unpopular among Americans. Many prominent organizations in the movement have been marred by scandal, including BLM. He says, quote, the DEI movement has lost control of Twitter. I think that's referring to the Elon takeover. And lastly, he says, 
Tech workers don't have as much power as they used to because the job market is contracting and they can't just threaten to leave and get another job. I'm not sure how much of this I buy because like it's hyper focused on tech and I don't think DEI only or even primarily lives in tech. It's much more widespread wow. than that. So I don't see it. What is he what is affirmative action is probably dead even mean? How what is that about mean? he's talking about the Supreme Court killing affirmative action. No, I know, but what is that why I don't know. Why would that Well, I think for him this is like affirmative action is the poster child of DEI and if that's dead then DEI that's a sign that DEI is dead too. Oh. Yeah, I don't think I, f- I mean, I think there's elements of truth to some of what he's saying, but I don't think I follow his reasoning overall. I also think it's a little bit reductive to say like DEI is a monolithic thing that's either doing well or poorly. I think that just depends. It's complicated. I'm a pervert for nuance. Shirts now available at barpodmerch.com. Okay, Jesse, more important question. If DEI or wokeness, whatever you want to call it, is on the wane, how is that going to affect this podcast? Um, we're just going to have to shift and become like all that fascist. That's our next <laughs> I'm down. I'm down. Yeah, whatever. That's fine. I'll go where the wind blows. I think the U.S. should conquer Mexico. Personally. What about Canada? Um, n- n- wait till it warms up a little bit more. It'll be valuable. Real Build the wall on the Canadian border. Conquer mm-hmm. Mexico. Anything else about DH, DH, I keep wanting to say DHS. D-H-E-E-I, yes. Or DSW, Discount Shoe Warehouse. Oh, I love that place. Uh, anything else about this, Katie? Uh, no, I think that's it. This has been Blocked Reported. As always, we are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, there are no funny-sounding names, just funny-sounding languages. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, if an au pair ever shows up to your door with a tray full of baked beans, make sure to double-check our references. Mm-hmm.